Would you uh, give the, the, uh, the kids a hand? Thank you all very much. Good job singing and leading. Thank you so much for all of the things that you did and all the practice that you've done. And uh, we really appreciate you leading our worship service today. And again, leaders, thank you for what you're doing, for investing in the future and investing in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, that's the goal, right? That the goal of our church is today and always has been and always will be that we not lose a single child. Today, as we um, continue our study, our, our discussion of a God-directed life, we are still working our way through Daniel. We picked Daniel because he does this. He leads a life directed by God in a very difficult circumstance. We have to remember where he is and what's going on as a background for all of this. We're in Daniel chapter 7 today. And I just want to remind you that we're not going to be doing sort of the typical look at these prophecies. We've looked at them and we will refer to them. We'll talk about them a little bit, but we're not going to go through Daniel chapter 7 in order to discover the images and what they represent. We'll kind of, those will be mentioned. They'll be kind of a passing by as we talk about those. But what I really want you to see in Daniel chapter 7 today is Daniel. There's a difference. There's a change that takes place in this chapter, in this moment, in Daniel's life. That's significant. And we blow by it because we want to go quickly and look at these weird-looking images and beasts and stuff that he sees. But let's not miss the man in search of the beasts. Okay? Let's not miss the man, Daniel, and his experience and how it informs our own in search of these wild images that are, that are in the book. <clears throat> So I invite you, if you have your Bible, open it to Daniel chapter 7. If not, the text that I'll be talking about will be on the screen. And I've entitled this, God Breaks the Silence. Daniel has been in Babylon for 54 years. Daniel has been in Babylon for 54 years. Over five decades he has lived in Babylon. He is somewhere in his late 60s to his early 70s. Okay? Daniel has been in Babylon since he was a teenager. He is in his late 60s to early 70s. 54 years he has served in Babylon. And this is the first time he hears personally from God when it doesn't refer to someone else's need. Did you catch that? 54 years and God breaks his silence and speaks to Daniel. I have a friend. My friend's a pastor, and in his pastoral ministry, it has been his custom to hear the voice of God on a regular basis. That, you know the voice I'm talking about? It's it's that silent voice that is so loud you can't ignore it. Think about how that works. You have that silent voice, that voice that's not audible, it's in your head, but it's so loud you can't ignore it. My friend was accustomed to hearing that very regularly. In fact, he would tell me about, oh, I, you know, so-and-so, somebody came in my office the other day and uh, came in and told me this was what was going on, and God just told me it was something else. And I, saw, I stopped him in the middle of the conversation and said, aren't you really here about this? And he said it just kept happening to him all the time, all the time, day in and day out. This was always the case. About 15, maybe even a little longer, years ago, it stopped. 
It just stopped. All, all of a sudden one day, nothing. Silence. He would be in the same situation. Someone would come into his office. What you doing, Peyton? Jaden? I found Pastor Grace. There he is right there. Would you stand? You need to stand up now. Uh, for those of you who may be visiting with us, the reason that happened is because Pastor Webster, for about seven years, was a pastor in our church here. And um, we have been uh, blessed to have him as a part of our church family. We miss him a lot. He's moved to Peoria, Arizona. And uh, he and I regularly interact with Jaden. Um, when Jaden uh, come, would come up for Children's Story every week, we would, we would interact with Jaden. So Jaden found Pastor Groff. Good job, Jaden. Pastor Webster, I can't even keep you straight. So welcome, Greg. Um, Now I just have to remember where I was. Let me just go back and say, after 50 years, this happens to Daniel. For my friend, it had been going on for about 20, 25 years of ministry. And then all of a sudden, it stopped. It went silent. And I've talked to him several times. In fact, one of those times fairly recently. And he said, man, I just wish I could still hear the voice of God. He goes into a counseling session. Somebody walks in, sits down next to him now. And he has no clue what they're there for. They, what they say is what they say, and he doesn't have any other, other support, any other clue from it. And he can't figure out. And he asks regularly, is it something I've done, God? Is there some reason that it's gone silent? Daniel had the opposite experience. He heard from God on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar, his boss. He heard from God in other situations, but he did not hear personally from God for 54 years. So as Daniel chapter 7 starts, that's the big change. That's the big difference. Now, I want to stop and think about how significant that would be in your life. Imagine you've been cruising along through your life and you hit 70. And all of a sudden, God starts talking to you. You start having visions and dreams and prophetic utterances from God. First of all, it would probably scare you to death, right? First thing would be like, oh, oh, what happened here? Did I just eat a funny pizza? What happened to me here? And then you would start probably to feel a little honored. And then you might start to feel a little concerned. I think we have to recognize that all of this is probably true of this man of God. He's been following after God in a pagan world, in exile for all of these years. And suddenly God starts to speak to him one night. And God starts to show him prophetic visions. It's in the first year of Belshazzar the king. Sorry, I need to back up. That's the opening of the, of the text. That's all it really tells us about it. In the first year of Belshazzar the king, God breaks his silence, and Daniel begins to have a dream. That first year of Belshazzar the king, we talked about this a while back, and so I'm just going to hit it real briefly. Nabonidus was the actual king, but Nabonidus didn't really like being king in Babylon. He didn't actually apparently like Babylon at all. And we know that he made his son co-regent in 553, 552. It, that's uh, our, our time versus their time. Babylonian calendar and your calendar don't add up. So 553, 552, according to your approach to the calendar. And we also know that in that same year, his father conquered an oasis called Tama out in the Arabian desert and moved there. So he left his son at home to take care of business. 
And he went out and lived in an oasis in the desert. So think about his dad moved to Palm Springs. Okay? So that's what happened. In 552, his dad conquers Palm Springs and moves there. I'm going to go live in Palm Springs. You take care of the business at home. And that's what happens. He goes away, leaves his son there to take care of things at home. And Belshazzar becomes co-regent. He becomes the co-king of the, of the empire. And he is, he, is, uh, he is living in the city of Babylon in the luxury of the king's palace in Babylon. In the first year of his reign... We are 54 years into, De- into Daniel's experience in Babylon. Again, he's probably late 60s to early 70s when this story begins to take place. Now, if we've been following along, you notice we're going backwards in time, right? If you've been following along, 4, 5, 6, we know that in chapter 5, this same king ends up dying, right? Chapter 6, we have the beginning of the, of the reign of the Persians, but we've backed up because Daniel's not interested in us having a chronological story. He's interested in having us understand something about what God is doing. He's not interested in a chronological story. He's interested, interested in us understanding God. Okay, I'll, I'll, I want to remind you that the events that Daniel endured in silence are more than you and I ever usually face. Remember the events? One of them will come up here in a minute, I hope. When he was in his teens, he lived through the siege of Jerusalem, and God did not speak to him. God did not say to him, it'll be okay. Number two, he lived through his people himself being captured by Babylon, and God was silent. He lived being chosen out of all the millions of Israel. He lived being chosen as one of those few thousand taken to Babylon. He got to be chosen for the team nobody wanted to be on, and God was silent. He was marched 800 to 1,000 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And apparently, God was silent. He's made a eunuch and God is silent. He's confronted that initial first chapter confrontation about his his willingness to do what the Babylonians asked him. That whole food discussion and God is silent. Now God is active, but he's not speaking to Daniel. He's active on on Daniel's behalf and Daniel has faith in him. He's speaking to Jeremiah, but he's not speaking to Daniel. Ten years into the exile, the, another prophet will be sent to, Babel, or to Babylon. That's Ezekiel. And God speaks to Ezekiel, but he's not speaking directly to Daniel. In the midst of all the things that happened to him, threats from the king after the king's de- dream, 54 years in Babylon, and Daniel hears from God only for the benefit of others. God is not speaking directly to Daniel. The reason I want to tell you this, and the reason I want to emphasize this, is I have talked to many, probably hundreds at this point in my life, of Christians who say to me, why doesn't God talk to me? Why don't I hear from God? Number one, you do. 
Just because the audible voice of God is not giving you prophetic utterances does not mean he is not speaking to you. God speaks to you through his word. Right? That's why it's there. It's there to help us understand how life functions on this planet. How other believers who have gone before us lived and breathed and worked through difficulties on this planet. Remember the Bible is a highlight reel. We sometimes look at the Bible and think, everybody in the Bible talks to God, why not me? Well, remember, this is covering thousands of years and you're picking the highlights, the peaks of those events are what's being demonstrated for us in the Bible. And so you and I are being spoken to out of the scripture by the examples of others, by the experiences of others, and we are supposed to understand how those apply to us. Read the scriptures. God is trying to speak to you out of the scriptures. God speaks to you in the still, small voice of conviction. Sometimes it's a really loud voice. God speaks to all of us out of the voice of conviction. All of us hear from God. He says, go this way, don't go that way. All of us feel that, that gripping voice of conviction, especially when we're about to do something stupid, right? God speaks to you and I through the powerful voice of conviction. God speaks to us through others. The experiences and studies and developments of others' understanding is given to us by them. People testify. The word of someone else's testimony is the strength of the individual in the church. Someone else speaking to us for God, on behalf of God, not knowing necessarily that they're doing it, is there to strengthen and lift us and encourage our faith, to direct us, help us to understand when we're hearing from God. You see, people pray and they say, Here's what I expect for God to do, and he's not talking to me about it. I've been asking God to do X, Y, or Z, and he's not responding. The heavens are silent. God doesn't care. It's just not true. He's been speaking to you and I all of our lives. He's been listening and whispering. He hears us, and he whispers back to us. The same thing was true of Daniel. Daniel had not heard a prophetic utterance in his entire life. But in this entire thing... This entire time, the Spirit is still there, still moving, still directing, still guiding. The heavens are silent in terms of direct conversation with Daniel. But the heavens are vocal in terms of Daniel's leadership, in terms of his faith. The things he's been taught by his parents, the things he falls back on in his own spiritual walk, the opportunities he's had to say yes and repeat that yes in a difficult situation. The opportunities Daniel has had to practice what it means to follow after God, to lead a life directed by him, are not mistakes. They're plans. God has been speaking to you and speaking to me our entire lives. So please don't imagine that the heavens are silent because you're not hearing prophetic utterances or hearing God say, this is a definite yes. This is a definite no. Do you know sometimes God leaves the choice for you? Scary, isn't it? Sometimes God lets you make up your own mind. And I think more often than not, God says either of these choices are okay with me. God, should I buy a blue car or a red car? I don't think he cares. I get more tickets if I buy a red car. Yeah, but you already know that. Put a grace point sticker on it. It'll make you drive slower. Trust me, it works. 
The point of the matter is he is not silent with any of us and never will be. But this is the first prophetic utterance Daniel has had in his life. This is the first time God is speaking to Daniel specifically, prophetically. Daniel has had the stories of Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar, and Ezekiel all around him. I want to read to you just a little bit from Jeremiah. Somehow, I've laid my glasses down. Lay over there by you, Greg. Okay, who wants to give me their glasses? Yours aren't going to work. Sheila's will work. Oh, you, why do you women always buy these little tiny ones? <laughs> they don't even go all the way to my ears, Sheila. <laughs> wait. Exchange. Wait, wait, Bob. We got better. We got better. We got better. The fellowship of the believers. Here we go. While he is in captivity in Babylon, God sends a message to the people who are in that captivity, in that exile, from the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to explore this after Easter. We're going to look at some of these prophets of the exile and the things that they're sharing during that time. But I want you to catch Jeremiah chapter 29. Listen to the introduction of the chapter. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away as captives, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away as captives from Jerusalem to Babylon. So what's Jeremiah chapter 29? It's a letter to the captives who are in exile. You got that? Everybody following? Okay. Listen to this verse. Beginning verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. Stop. You're living in exile in Babylon. You get a letter from the prophet Jeremiah and he says, after 70 years, you're out. Your, your term of exile in Babylon is 70 years. Would you start counting that clock? Raise your hand if you think you'd count. Okay, I think most of us would count. We'd start counting down, right? We'd say, okay, well, I've been here five. That means I've got 65 left. Now, that wouldn't be great, but 65 is better than, you know, I don't know when I'm going to get out of here. So he's got a determined end. Daniel has been in captivity for 54 years. You know why I think God begins to speak to him? Because the time is winding down. And the people of Babylon need to hear from this faithful servant of God at a time when it's starting to wind up, when things are starting to stop, when the, when the things are starting to stop, when the Babylonians are about to end their reign and the people of Israel are about to go back from exile. The 70 years are winding down, and at that moment, God begins to speak to him. There's about 15 or 16 years left of those 70 years when he starts to speak. But let's not, let's not finish with Jeremiah yet. He's saying, in 70 years, you're going to go free. Verse 11. Now listen to verse 11, and remember where verse 11 is actually found, who it's written to. This, this passage gets quoted all the time out of context. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You're in exile. You don't like it. You're stuck in Babylon. You've been hauled off there against your will. Some of you have been made into eunuchs. Some of you are forced into service of the king. Some of you are slaves. Some of you are building palaces. Some of you just don't know what you're there for. And I'm telling you right now, I know the plan. 
Wouldn't you be glad God knew the plan? He's simply saying, I know the plan. Don't get yourselves all too nervous about this. I have a plan. I know the plan. It's not a problem with, for you. It's not a plan to harm you. It's a plan to prosper you. While you are in exile, I still have a plan to prosper you. Is that, is that good news to anybody beyond the third row? God has a plan and he's telling Israel, I have this in my hands. It may look like you're in disaster zone, but I'm telling you, even in this, I will prosper you. You will prosper in the exile. This is the most successful punishment God ever brings on the people of Israel. Over and over again, the Philistines come in, they go right back to their foreign gods. The Amalekites come in, they go right back to their foreign gods. Over and over again, people come through Israel and all kinds of things happen as a result of Israel going after foreign gods. All sorts of punishments happen as a result of Israel going after foreign gods. What happens? They follow, the God, they follow God while that king lives, that king dies, and they go right back to the foreign gods. He sends them off to Babylon and that never happens again. In fact, the pendulum swings all the way to the opposite side. And they actually, end, eventually, when by the time Jesus comes, he's have a corrective about their legalism because they've swung so hard to the other side. But this is so effective that Israel is transformed. They never worship the pagan gods again. They never go after the Canaanite gods again. Baal, not interested. Asherah, not interested. God says, I have a plan. You are in exile. You don't want to be there. I know you think the Babylonians are worse than you are. I know you don't want to be under Nebuchadnezzar's thumb. I know, I know, I know, but I have a plan. I know my plan. The believer needs to always understand that no matter what the circumstances of the day are, God is still God. He's still on his throne and we are not abandoned. No matter what it looks like around our house today, God is still on his throne and we are not abandoned. He has a plan and that plan is to care for you and I. They are in exile as we are in exile. They are in a foreign land under a foreign king as we are in a foreign land under the reign of sin. And God still has a plan. And the plan is through it all to benefit and bless and prosper his children. I haven't even gotten past verse 1. I guess I ought to keep going. Just remember that this man remains faithful to God when he's there as Nebuchadnezzar goes to Jerusalem and destroys his homeland. He remains faithful to the call God had in his life to serve a king who's destroying his home, who's burned down his temple, who's burned down his city. He remains faithful to God in the service of this king in spite of all that is going on, all that there is on the surface. And what happens to the king? What is the story of the king? The king's heart is changed and the king's heart is converted and the king puts forward a testimony across the entire empire about God. The, ten, the, the king of Babylon fulfills the call of Israel. The king of Babylon fulfills the call of Israel. Pretty cool. We'll go quick through this. I told you this. A few weeks ago, this thing is built in a chiasm, which is like that, that ziggurat in Babylon right there. It's a triangular organizational structure. Instead of yours and my organizational structure, introduction, point one, point A, point B, point two, point A, point B, point three, point A, point B, close, conclusion. It's a, 
a parallel of arguments building to a, my, a main point. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 relate to each other. We're going to co- look at that in a minute. Chapter 3 and chapter 6 relate to each other. So 2 and 7 are the two prophetic passages. 3 and 6 are the two passages where the people of God are thrown into captivity. One thrown into a fiery furnace, the other one thrown into the lion's den. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, the comparison of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, a king who follows after God's heart and a king who spits in God's eye. And the king, the top of this pyramid, is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar across his empire for the people of God, saying the, the, the God of Daniel is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Daniel 4 and 5, those comparative kings. Daniel 3 and 6, those comparative events. Daniel 2 and 7, those comparative prophecies. Got it? We'll go quick. In the first year of Nabonidus, this is Dad moves off to Tema. That's the, that's the well at Tema. For 2,000 years, that well has continued to push forth, forth, push forth water in the middle of the desert. If you want to look at something interesting, go on, online and look up Tema in the Saudi Arabian desert. It is still there today, and that well is still putting out water. Now, it's pretty nasty-looking water, but if you're out in the middle of the desert, I think any water is going to feel pretty good to you. <clears throat> in the first year, Daniel has a vision and a dream at night while he lays on his bed. The first image he sees, the first beast coming up out of the water was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. And I watched. Note the word I watched. Do you see it there? I watched. He's going to say that over and over again. I want you to watch what he's watching because we see what's getting his attention. We see where his heart is. I watched until the wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and the man's heart was given to it. Lots of symbology about this. This is a fairly recognizable picture for Daniel because these are all over the the gates in Babylon. Can you see the wing down the right side of that, down the side of that, uh, that lion? This is a fairly common picture of Babylon. Daniel, when he sees this, this winged lion, knows who he's talking about. He knows we're talking about Babylon because he knows this is a symbol for the city of Babylon. If you go to, the, to Berlin and go into the Berlin Museum, you will see this great gate, this huge gate. The Ishtar Gate's been reconstructed there, and it has these all over it. Animals, and these particular animals in specific. In the middle of Babylon, there was a great, huge winged lion as one of the main statuary inside. The winged lion is clear to Daniel as a prophetic picture of Babylon, the country in which he dwells. He said, it says of the winged lion that the wings would be plucked off, it would stand up like a man and be given the heart of a man. If you have the heart of a lion and you're given the heart of a man, which would you prefer? Hmm. I'm not really sure. The idea is that Babylon was this conquering nation with the heart of a lion. Nobody stood in their way. And then uh, they were given this change in posture. And if you looked at Babylon as Nebuchadnezzar led out, they conquered the the Fertile Crescent, conquered the then known world. And then what happens? They begin to weaken. They begin to fall away as Nebuchadnezzar's progeny takes over. They're less and less strong. They're given the heart of a man. They stand up on a man's feet. And they stop that overcoming of the world around them. He then sees a second beast. Suddenly, another beast beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth. Lots of conversations about this bear. Notice that he's raised up on one side. He's not flat. He's not even. We'll see the same thing next week when we take on chapter eight. They're not even. And we'll talk about why later. But this is that this is the advancement of the Medo-Persian empire. A bear is an interesting symbol. The Medo-Persians, the Medes are coming from the mountains where they would find the bears in the region. 
Bears are up in that region. Medes are coming from the mountains. The Persians are coming from the plains to the east of the mountains. The Medo-Persian Empire would be the next empire to dominate the world. Three ribs in its mouth. There were three kingdoms, three major cities that had to be taken. Lydia, Babylon, and I just forgot the third one, but I'll have to tell you next week. Three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus, Arise and devour much flesh. The Medo-Persians come in, and under Cyrus the Great, they take over what was the entire Babylonian Empire, and they begin to push it up on the European plains. And they begin to push, or the uh, Caucasus plains, and they begin to push it towards Europe, all the way to Bulgaria. And the empire begins to swell and begins to grow and becomes bigger and stronger under the Medes and the Persians. But just like the statue in chapter 2, this doesn't last forever. It lasts only for a while. And along comes a third beast. This third beast is, is <clears throat> that he looked at. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard. Like a what? A leopard. So we've seen a lion, a bear, and a leopard. This one like a leopard which had on its back four wings. We've gone from two wings on the first animal, no wings on the second animal, four wings on the fourth animal. It had four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given over it, given over to it. It had the authority, the dominion over the entire region. This is representing Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire that would follow. It's a great representative of it. Four wings being those very swift overtaking of the world. Three years, three years, Alexander the Great comes out of the Grecian Peninsula and conquers everything from there to India. He makes the foolish, foolish decision to march, march south across the deserts, bringing his soldiers back, loses a ton of his soldiers. But he controls everything from Egypt to India to the far reaches of Greece. In three years, Alexander the Great captures all of that, and then he dies. It's divided up among his four generals. How many heads are there? Four. Strongest general gets the homeland. Wouldn't you want the homeland if you were the strongest? Strongest general gets the Grecian Peninsula. The next general gets the nearest, Asia Minor, nearest area around it. The next general gets the Seleucid area, which is Syria all the way through to India. And the next general gets Egypt. They split it up and it, they fight back and forth for parts of it. But that's the original split with four heads. I'm going through this really fast. Normally, I would take 45 minutes or an hour to just go through the prophecy part of this. But I want you to see something else here. So we're going quickly through it. The fourth beast. I kind of like this artist's depiction. It kind of looks like a dog with weird horns. Because the Bible doesn't really describe it. It's just this odd looking thing. It's some kind of weird beast. And I saw in the night vision, and I've uh, cut out a big piece. See the three little dots? I saw in a night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. And it had huge, what kind of teeth? Iron teeth. Just like the image in chapter 2, this one has iron in it, iron teeth, and it had ten horns. The image in chapter 2 had ten little piggies that went to market. Remember, those are at the bottom of your feet. This one has ten horns that are coming up out of it. Just like these ten kings that would come out of the iron, iron legs in chapter 2, these horns are independent and they function independently of the beast. I was considering the horns. Now notice this, this statement. I was considering. Now I want to get you to what I would like to try to get in the next 15 minutes. Watch what he's watching in this chapter. I was considering the horns. So he sees all of this stuff. All these crazy wild things that are going on. Uh, Pastor Greg and I used to talk about this as the zoo. 
This is part of the zoo that is in prophetic history. There's always these, these weird animals, this strange zoo of creatures. He's seen all of this zoo. He's seen all these crazy animals and crazy creatures. What is he focusing on at the end? Horns. He's, he stopped looking at this crazy wild beast with iron teeth, and now he's looking at horns. I don't know about you, but does that seem a little odd? It seems a little odd to me. Why, why stop looking at this wild, dreadful creature that you've been talking about and focus on horns? But he does. I was considering the horns. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up. <coughs> and there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man. So, if you walked over to your local dairy and you saw the bull, he probably wouldn't have his horns, but just for, for, just for the sake of our uh, discussion, you saw the, boar, the bull, And you looked at one of his horns, and there were eyes and a mouth on the horn. Would that attract your attention? It attracts his attention. He's considering the horns. He sees this guy. He's got eyes and a mouth. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth, speaking pompous words, great words, blasphemous words. It's translated all three ways. But he's talking, and the words that he's talking are significant. They're significant in that they're apo- they seem to be in opposition toward God. They seem to be pointing against God. I watched, so he was considering, and now he's watching. I watched until thrones were set up. And God shows up. And God's throne is on wheels like Ezekiel saw. They're not in this picture. And there's fire flowing out from God like a river. This image that he sees, this next thing. So he sees all these beasts and all this stuff roll out. The zoo comes out one at a time. The lion, the bear, the the leopard, and then this undescribable beast. Then the horns, and then thrones are set up. And now he sees the Father. He sees God show up. And he sees God on his throne. Now let me ask you, if this were you, would this be enough? Would this leave you feeling, oh good, I can wake up now, dream's over? Hmm. Maybe a little curious still. Okay. I watched. I was watching, and I kept watching. Why was I watching? I was watching because of the pompous words. So whatever this horn was saying, whatever this little porn power was saying, the words were bothering Daniel. He's watching because of the words. He sees God on his throne, and now he keeps watching because this weird little horn is talking, and whatever he's saying is bugging Daniel. That's got Daniel a little disturbed, a little bothered. Now, again, we could spend a lot of time unpacking these guys. I'm going to give you a quick synopsis. First beast, Babylon. Second beast, Medo-Persia. Third beast, Greece. Fourth, Rome. Out of that comes the ten horns representing the, the divisions of Rome that become Europe. Out of that becomes Catholicism, actually, in its dominance of the region of Europe in the following years behind Rome. Now, all of that, I just told you, should normally take 45 minutes. Sorry. I promise if you want more information, I'll be happy to share it with you. Okay? It also took over a millennium to happen. I watched. I watched and I saw God. I watched and this little horn was bugging me. I watched. 
And this time in the night vision, I saw one like the Son of Man coming to the throne of God, and the kingdom was given over to him forever. Would that be enough? Would you be able to say, okay, now it's time for me to wake up. I'm good. I've seen the resolution of the story. I read the last page, and I'm good. Would you be able to do that at that point? This is your dream. Are you wanting it to end here? No. This is a good ending. This is a really good ending. And Jesus came, kingdom was given over to him. Woo! See, this is the problem. Everybody wants to know what happens to them. Everybody wants to be the star of their own dream, and this is our problem. Daniel's watching. He keeps watching. He's watching the flow. And I, I hope you're reading along, or at least going to read a long letter a long later, because this is a significant story, all that's going on. But catch what happens to Daniel. We always look at this and we go through the beast and the images and we try to explain all of that stuff. But watch what's happening to Daniel. He now sees the coming of the Messiah and the Messiah giving, given the king. This is actually the, the picture of the, the coronation as one artist sees it in Revelation. That green room with the green rainbow around the throne and the, the, the four creatures and the 24 elders and the saints gathered round. He sees Jesus given the kingdom and then he doesn't feel satisfied. Grieved. Daniel is still seeking an answer. I was grieved in my spirit. He just saw Jesus come. I was grieved in my spirit within my body and the vision of my head troubled me. And I, I came near to the one who stood by and I asked him the truth of all of this. And so he told me and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. So stop. Daniel sees all this stuff. He sees these beasts raining through all of the, the empires of the earth. He sees the coming of the father. He's still concerned about this horn. And then he sees the coming of the Messiah. The kingdom is handed over to him forever. This is the wrap up of chapter two. Right? The, the stone comes out, hits this, hits this thing on the bottom, it grinds up, and the eternal kingdom b bursts out from the foot of it. Why isn't he satisfied? This horn's bugging him. This, this comments, the words, what's going on with this horn is bothering him. I was grieved in my spirit, so I asked the angel who I was there with, what's all this about? Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. See, I didn't make that up. It's in the text. But the saints in the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. Would you be satisfied now? You ask the angel, so what's all this about? And he said, look, four kings, four kingdoms, but don't worry, the saints win. God's people win. Woohoo! You can wake up now. Nobody wants to wake up yet. I think you people are hard on God. He's trying to communicate. He's trying to give Daniel the answer that Daniel wants. Daniel wants more answer. Daniel wants to know what's happening to him. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. What is Daniel focusing on? The scary part. I wanted to know the truth about the fourth, fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces, and trampled the residue with its feet. He said, I want to know about this last one, who seems to be a lot harder than everyone else. He just tears stuff up, and, and we know this is true. 
When the Romans destroyed something, they truly destroyed it. There used to be a valley on the west side of, of Jerusalem that isn't there anymore. You know why? Because in 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they swept all of the rubble from Jerusalem into this valley. One archaeological dig that was done in that valley says the debris is over 70 feet deep. Is that a good picture of they, they destroyed it and they trampled it to pieces, the residue under its feet? The Roman leadership, the Roman uh, generals and engineers were known for two really solid things. Complete destruction if they had to destroy something and complete rebuilding into something else when they were done. And the ten horns that were on its head, this is his question still. And the, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, nearly that, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than all his fellows. And I was watching. And the same horde was making what? War against the saints. Stop. Now do you see his problem? Do you see what Daniel's problem is? He got to see all the kingdoms of the world. He'd seen those before in chapter 2. He got to see the end of the story. God wins the end of the story. He'd seen that in chapter 2. But he hadn't seen this. He hadn't seen the development of this sort of 11th toe. You know, the 11th toe that pops up and kills three toes as it comes out. Some kind of weird fungus growing on your foot and you end up with another toe. He hadn't seen this before. This is a new thing for him. And we're going to see this again. This, this, this horn becomes a focus in chapter 8. He hadn't seen this development before. And what's worrying Daniel is what would worry you and me. What he saw of this horn was that it was actually prevailing against the saints. It was destroying and making war against the saints. Who are the saints as far as Daniel sees it? Who are the saints as far as Daniel sees it? It's not you. Daniel has no perception of Christianity. As far as Daniel sees it, it's Israel. And all he can see is that somewhere in the future there's going to be the rise of this power, this authority that's going to trample and create, cause war and prevail against his people. And he wants to know about that. He doesn't know if it involves him, but he wants to know about it. He wants to know what's going on with his people. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. They've been trampled. They're stuck over there for another 15 or so years. What is this, God? You're showing me that this is all going to happen all over again. What do we do? Is there any way we can prevent it? What is this about? What he's told, that is all true. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people and the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominion shall serve and obey him. It's a familiar story. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are all really familiar to our friend Daniel. It has the same ending. The kingdom is coming and God will have dominion over everything on the planet. But he's still worried. At the end of this chapter... At the close of the book, or the close of the, of the, the dream, Daniel is told 
here's all the kingdoms. Here's what's going to happen. Yep, there's this little power that's going to come up and rule stuff. But God's going to take care of him, and the kingdom and dominion and authority and power will be given to the saints. Okay? And the book ends, or the story ends with Daniel saying, I was still troubled. I was still worried. I was still struck by it. I want to trust you, God. You've revealed so much to me. You've told me so many things. I want to trust you. But there are still things I'm worrying about. There are still things I'm struggling with. You know, God, you've told me that if I align myself with you and follow after you, I will find blessings. I will experience abundance in my life. If I follow you and trust you, God, I will experience abundance. You've promised it. You've said it right in your word. But I'm still worried about that. I still know that nobody escapes the planet without death. Nobody gets off this planet. The death, the, the, the death toll is 100%. I'm worried about that, God. You know, God, I've seen that the saints win. I've read the last book. I've read the last story. I've read the last page. And the Bible says the saints win. The people of God will prevail. The dominion will be, in fact, handed over to the people of God. And they will have eternity in the hand of God. But, but I'm worried about it. I'm worried about how I'm going to get there. I'm worried that I even will get there. I'm worried that my friends will get there. I'm worried about this stuff, God, because I keep seeing the world and the world keeps impaling the rest of, the, of your, your people. The saints aren't impervious to struggles. The saints aren't impervious to death. The saints aren't impervious to sickness. God, I'm a little worried about the saints. You're not really taking care of them the way I'd take care of them if I were God. God. And stuff keeps happening. These, these little horns pop up and they prevail over the people. God, people keep getting voted into office that I don't want to vote for. People keep being, being put on the ballot. I don't even want to make a choice between. Can you do something about that? God, my check doesn't seem to go as far when I tithe as I'd like it to. You know, here I am, I'm giving you my tithe. You said that things would happen and I would be blessed with abundance. Well, what's going on with that? Is any of this true for you? Are any of you feeling what Daniel's feeling? Because I am. You know, we, we look at this prophecy and we pick it apart and look at its, its descriptions of the world and the global history and all of that is... Valid and true and a reasonable interpretation. But the prophet is experiencing something that we all experience and we blow right by it. The prophet is being given information from God. God is telling him, this is what's happening out there, Daniel. And here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to take away from this. I got you. In spite of all the stuff that's going on, all the world turmoil around you, in spite of the noise you hear on the news, in spite of ISIS, and in spite of European terrorists, and in, in spite of domestic terrorism in the United States, and, and, and the, the towers falling, and, 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 and airplanes being hijacked, and struggle and strife all over the world, I want you to understand the kingdom wins. God wins in the end. I got you. 
I got you in my hand. In spite of the fact that you're in exile on a planet full of sin, don't forget that I have you in my hand. I have you. You know the plan? I wrote the plan. I know the plan. I made the plan. I have you in my hands. Your world may not be all that you hoped it would be, Daniel. Your world may not be all that you hoped it would be, Walt. Your world may not be all that you hoped it would be, but it's okay. I am still God. I am still on my throne. I still have a plan. And my plan is for your eternal success. I win in the end, Daniel. I win in the end, Walt. All of your losses on the planet weigh against that one true thing. You're in my hand. No matter how messy things look around you, you're in my hand. I am on my throne. I am in charge of the planet. I have a plan. Stop worrying about me. Let's pray. Father, it is our constant struggle to trust you. Thank you that a man who knew you as well, as intimately, as completely as this man did, demonstrates the struggle, the battle, the failings that we all have. We're not sure we agree with your plans all the time. We're not sure we can trust that you really understand our problem. We keep getting distracted by the trouble that we see on the horizon. And we take our eyes off the assurity, off the absolute certainty that you are on your throne. And none of this is a surprise to you. And none of this is outside your ability. I pray for deeper faith for a more trusting heart. For a reminder when the days get tough that we don't go through any of this alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.
Father, we are, we are blessed to have the time.